0: what Bill was doing down there after his time in Akron, and then um, coming up seven, or 22, Stepping Stones in Bedford Hills, and then further up seven, High Watch Farm, founded by Bill and Marty in 1940. Um, And then this pearl on that chain, uh, the Wilson House. And it's always rich for my wife, Paige, and I to come back, and Paige is along this trip. because uh, I worked at Hazelton in New York, um, we went to meetings in Bedford Village uh, in our six years out east here, um, worked at High Watch Farm, uh, and I've done four out of the last five November presentations here at the Wilson House. So um, it's very rich. It's also, you know, I do a lot of presenting, and I think this one presents the most uh, kind of a little bit of nerve-wracking early on for me, just because... Um, just because, how's that? And because uh, just because I let self get in the way, that's why. Um, special thanks to uh, the Wilson House staff, who are always beyond accommodating, and especially Bonnie, who um, is amazingly committed to this uh, wonderful um, resource for uh, for members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to thank all of you for coming, new friends, old friends, familiar faces. Uh, it's actually in part like a reunion um, each year, and it's we're really glad to be here. One of the things I need to mention, because it's very much in my mind, is um, the passing of an important teacher for me. And interestingly enough, um, I think I went to four Joe and Charlie big book studies, three of which Joe did, McQuaney, uh, one of which was a different Joe, and um, had the opportunity to work with the Kelly Foundation for a couple of years on a curriculum for treating substance abuse in in a corrections facility based on Recovery Dynamics, the program that uh, Joe wrote, uh, comprehensive program, I'll be making uh, frequent reference to that. Uh, and then he just was, in some ways, one of those special people in my life that every time I read something that he wrote or listened to a tape, um, I remember just six months ago listening to a tape of his story, and he said, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I probably wouldn't have amounted to much. Uh, wonderful things like that uh, that I can relate to. But Joe died um, 10.30, October 25th, Thursday morning a little over a week ago. And um, in his passing, I'm I'm often reminded of the relationship that I had with my sponsor-in-law. You don't often hear about sponsor-in-laws in in AA, but I had a really powerful sponsor-in-law, and her name was uh, Marion Forbes, and she was my wife's sponsor, so that's why I called her my sponsor-in-law. And um, just kind of being on the periphery of Paige's relationship with her, And being loved by her. These were, you know, she and Joe were in that category of person. And there are these these kind of saints, humble saints in AA, very, very, very spiritually realized people. Um, And when I think of kind of the heart and soul of what I'm getting from the 12 and 12 these days, it's all about living lives of good purpose, not just getting sober and not just getting emotionally balanced, but living lives of good purpose. And I can't think of a more exemplary life than Joe's for living a life of good purpose. Um, I was at his 45th AA birthday, his Friday date was March 10th, 1962, I was at his 45th anniversary birthday as a part of a workshop that they were doing down in Middle Rock uh, last March. And at his party, the social worker who checked him into the hospital March 10th, 1962 was there. And she said an amazing thing that that actually didn't surprise me, but it is an amazing thing. She said, "He was just as gentle then as he is now." So if we could just if we could just take a, a moment to be uh, for me just a uh, a quiet period of meditation to uh, honor Joe's life and and really the immeasurable good that uh, example that he carried. I started to read the hundreds of condolences that were being put online even within 12 hours of his death, and I realized that there was kind of a, for me, a new fellowship emerging, uh, the feeling of having shared in an uncommon man of God. And so I'm going to meditate on that, the, the feeling of having shared in an uncommon man of God and prayers for his survivors. Thank you. Because I'm a talking head (laughs) teacher, I've eliminated that real, um, the the fifth session today, um, which I didn't do two years ago, but I did it last year, and I've reminded myself why I didn't do it the year before last year when I did it. Uh, We'll be doing two sessions this morning, two sessions this afternoon, and two sessions tomorrow morning without that last 3.45 to 5 o'clock, so you have a little extra time um, to, I don't know, shop in Manchester, I don't know, but um, (laughs) whatever you'd like to do. Um, And in the first segment today, we're going to be talking about um, uh, kind of an introduction to the seeds of this topic for me. Um, And um, start with the hopeless condition, and then from 10.45 to noon, we'll be talking about The phrase I've chosen is the foundation of hope. And then after lunch today, we'll be talking about understanding our will in our lives. And this afternoon, facing and and being rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Now, again, these are general terms, generally from uh, key elements of the directions in the big book. Um, Finishing up tomorrow morning with um, continuing to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. And then the last segment tomorrow morning, a much more important demonstration of our principles. Uh, you may recognize that from page 19, lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. So with that said, um, I will just give you a very brief uh, element of my story. Um, and I was uh, born in Montana in 1948 um, to a railroad family. I went to five grade schools and four high schools. I was an oversensitive child. And um, I wound up early on being full of fear, being full of self-consciousness, being full of uh, shy, essentially being uncomfortable in my own skin. And moving around a lot certainly gave me an even greater opportunity to feel that way and a greater opportunity to kind of forge an outside that didn't match my insides. And I was living a pretty good lie by the time I uh, first discovered alcohol, that in a very brief moment, 10 minutes or so uh, actually transformed me from that constantly uncomfortable guy to um, to an experience I'd never had before of, of joy and happiness. and. Um, I've come to find out, and um, you know, th- even though I'm talking as Fred H, I want to bring a little brain chemistry to this, uh, because well, what I find interesting, being in the field, as well as in personal recovery, there's a lot of great research going on now that uh, uh, you know I- I'd say that's no longer the phenomena of craving. We, and and Joe and Charlie always talked about phenomena of craving as, as um, it happens, but we don't understand why. Well, now we've got images of what it, of what's going on when it comes to craving. And um, um, one of the gentlemen that I presented with one time who knew a lot about this stuff, brain chemistry, said, when we use for the first time our drug of what soon becomes our drug of choice and eventually becomes our drug of no choice, and I take great exception in the field of addiction that we use the term drug of choice, um, how ironic uh, that we would call it a drug of choice. Um, but when we first get exposed to that, he says we get a supra-physiologic dose-reward of dopamine unprecedented in our brain chemistry histories. First time we use. Supra-physiologic dose-reward of dopamine unprecedented in our brain, history, uh, brain chemistry histories. And, and guess what our brain never forgets? Uh, you know, the early on beginnings of uh, the illness of the mind. So um, I felt that at the age of 14 and alcohol became a chemical solution to what I now understand as an early spiritual malady. And I pursued that chemical solution to my pre-existing spiritual malady Um, Almost to my death, um, 13 years later, I tried to kill myself, uh, eating handfuls of Valium and codeine, and the ER doc said the best I could have done was to choke to death on them when I was eating them. But um, I got pretty sedated, and it got my attention, and I had my moment of clarity when the ER doc asked me a form of question that I learned actually in counselor training back in 1977 and 78. An open-ended, assumptive question. He didn't ask me, "Was last night a suicide attempt?" How would I have responded? No. Nah. I just needed to get—I needed to sedate myself to get some sleep because my girlfriend wasn't giving me her proper respect. <laughs> what he asked me was, "When have you tried to kill yourself before?" And he got me. I pay a lot of attention to what doctors I had early relationships with medical people and I wanted to be good for them and wanted to listen carefully and give them good information. And I listened carefully and in that moment, I realized the dimension of the misery in my life. That I had been kind of, through magical thinking and private logic, been escaping every day. And I went from leave me alone and I'd been trying to do something about my drinking for a year, but any time anybody bugged me about it, I would remind them that they should probably be going to Al-Anon. <laughs> Very effective defense. Um, I, I then became, in that moment of of uh, of grace, what do I do next? And if I could characterize a key element of right living especially as espoused in the wisdom tradition of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It has in part to do with following directions. And I started following directions. And he said, well, you didn't, you need to, what do I, do? I said, what do I do next? He said, well, you need to see a psychiatrist. So I went to a psychiatrist. I said, why well, don't have any money? And he said, well, here's a clinic where you don't need any money. You know, I was trying not to get help, but I was willing to pr- pursue it. And, uh, and for a $25 fee, uh, the psychiatrist told me that I wasn't depressed, I wasn't suicidal, I was a pretty sick young alcoholic male, and I needed treatment. So I went to treatment. And they said I needed to go to. Excuse me. They said I needed to go to AA, and I continued to go to AA. Um, and I had 12 very good years of, of recovery. And in October 8th, 9th, and 10th of 1988, I went to my first Joe and Charlie seminar. And um, nothing has been the same since. And that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for Joe McQuainy, who with Charlie Parmley were going around, ironically, teaching AA its own program. It's always struck me as kind of odd. I didn't learn the big book in AA. I learned it in a seminar by a couple of uh, old-time recovery guys. It was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. And recently I've had a similar situation with the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book. So took me 12 years to catch on to the big book and 19 more years to catch on to the 12 and 12. But I'm, I'm hanging in there. Uh, um, so uh, recovery has given me great riches in my life. I talk about having a God job, a God wife, a God house, a God car. 1983 Toyota Land Cruiser FJ60 with 72,593 miles on it. If anybody's interested, it's for sale. (laughs) It's red. A lot of customization, low-key stuff. Got the Rhino package of accessories, as click and clack talk about. So, um, and a god dog. And sometimes I wake up in the morning with a crap house, a crap wife, a crap dog, a crap car. And um, guess what changed? Me. Me. And the simplest way that I articulate the joy in my life today is that I get God things when I'm on the God path. And I get crap things when I'm on the crap path. And the crap path for me is the path of self-will. The path of doing just what I want to do. The path of meeting my instinct, demanding the the meeting of my own instincts, um, disregarding God and others. Uh, and so it turns out for me to be a fairly simple formula. Um, I wake up in the morning. I, I do the work suggested on awakening. I do the work suggested continue throughout the day. And I do the work suggested when I retire at night. And in each of those directions is an element that points to service in step 12. And I make myself available uh, uh, for that opportunity uh, if it should present itself to me. And it, too, provides some of the richest elements in my life today. Um, And one of the themes of uh, what the 12 and 12 has brought uh, into the fore for me and I'm so excited about is this whole idea of of the human instincts. So with that said, um, I'd like to start now with... a little bit of a discussion about this topic, broadening and deepening our understanding of the 12 steps as written in the earlier work, a proper use of the 12 by big book study. Now the reason I said 12 by is that I'm only into the front half of the book so far. Uh, Maybe next year I'll do a by 12 uh, presentation. But I'm talking about the first 12 chapters in the book 12 steps and 12 traditions. that um, uh, for many, many years for me had little meaning Um, because of what it says in the foreword on page 17 in the 12 and 12. And I wanna start with that quote because it's defining what we're doing here today. The book, Alcoholics Anonymous, anybody got a big book they can hold up to be my Vanna? Thank you. The book, Alcoholics Anonymous, became the basic text of the fellowship, and it still is. This present volume, anybody hold up a 12 and 12? Be the Vanna for the 12. This present volume, the 12 and 12, proposes to broaden, I'm not here, to broaden and deepen the understanding of the 12 steps as written in the earlier work. This present volume proposes to broaden and deepen our understanding of the 12 steps as first written in the earlier work. So I've had an opinion about the 12 and 12, and I try to be clear when I'm talking about opinions, because opinions I think are risky business for me. Uh, opinions are in the realm of self. Um, values are in the realm of spirit. So I don't have to be cautious about my values, but I have to be cautious about my opinions. And I had an opinion that the 12 and 12 was being used a lot as a standalone text in meetings that I would go to. And when somebody showed me this forward on page 17, um, it was the door that, it, would, it was the thing that first opened the door for me to use the 12 and 12 as it was intended. Um, and I think in doing this particular topic in the future, I won't say proper, because implied in that is improper. But I think intended is a clearer, less um, uh, debate. Uh, creating kind of word, Um, an intended use of the 12-by big book study. So I'm having the same experience now with the 12-by as I had with the big book starting in 1988. And it's really amazing. It is pure gold. It is so exciting. It's like I now carry it with me all the time. I carry both books now. And I've graduated to the large print edition, so this is (laughs) kind of a a trek at any given time. Um, Because it really speaks to me. And it speaks to me in a way that it's, it's never spoken to me before in the past. And part of it was just that simple idea of understanding what its intended purpose was. So in this study, this weekend, We're first going to look at the principles in the big book, and then we're going to look at the principles and how they're broadened and deepened in our understanding of them in the 12 and 12. And, you know, I ask um, where I work, because I get to teach this stuff in a renewal setting uh, every day, I ask people, how many of you have been to a 12 and 12 meeting where, a step meeting where they use the 12 and 12, lots of hands go up? How many of you have been to a step meeting where they use the twelve and twelve to study the big book, And very few hands go up and so this opinion that I had kind of kept me out of the out of the twelve and twelve and the, um, so again, one more proof of of how opinions really uh, uh, don 't help me that much. My favorite question how 'd that work out for you Fred um, it 's certainly given me. Um, Uh, a continued, you know, more will be revealed, and this is a classic example of that for me. Um, One of the things I want to touch briefly on that I talked about last year is how blessed we are as a... uh, Fellowship involved in a wisdom tradition and I, I firmly believe that the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and its information is provides a wisdom tradition that is just as as powerful and effective and wise as more ancient wisdom traditions and I'm, I'm talking about Christianity and Judaism. I'm talking about Eastern philosophies. I'm, my belief, my experience, is that this information, is just as valid a design for right living as other wisdom traditions. And <coughs> a gentleman from Austin, Texas, Bill Wigmore, does a presentation on uh, that's ba- overall basically on, on guidance and the Oxford group practice of, <coughs> of guidance. You know, big book in the first 164 pages uses the word guidance once. Uh, guidance is, is all over. The twelve by that phrase, um, but Bill starts that presentation by acknowledging how blessed we are to have a fairly accurate um, version of the message of the founders. He talks about an evolution, an evolution. Um, if I start to get giddy, it's it's the uh, marks a lot here, and I apologize for the uh, gender insensitivity, but the alliteration doesn't work with people. Um, the man leads to the message, leads to the machine. leads to the mausoleum. Someday, I will join the tribe of 21st century presenters (laughs) and bring a PowerPoint and simply pull that screen down and we'll all be happy. No hurry. Thank you. Um, I do kind of like the, the chalk dust and uh, all that stuff. But this evolution of founded wisdom traditions is, pretty, is pr- fairly predictable and demonstrated with some consistency. <clears throat> founded wisdom traditions and basically wisdom traditions are founded by, by exceptional uh, elements that get it all started. The person delivers the message. The message creates a machine and the machine ultimately evolves into a mausoleum. And so as you can see, the the founder's information gets captured, but then that information produces a system that isn't as clear about the message and ultimately, There's just the superstructure, you know, the the stained glass windows. Uh, Does this make sense? And I'm a student of all wisdom traditions, um, student of life. Being a student is the healthiest mode for me to live in, um, simply because it will help me never arrive, it will help me never graduate, Uh, and as my sponsor-in-law cautioned me so wisely many years ago, Fred be careful never to become somebody. And I teach a lot. I get a lot of great compliments. And I used to be kind of uncomfortable with that in the sense of not knowing quite how to act. And recently, um, I've realized that what this program has essentially taught me is that my ongoing daily struggles have lessons for my continued spiritual growth therefore my humanness builds in each day this opportunity to live imperfectly and then learn the lesson of that so i was all for learning the lessons of my struggles and then i realized i realized you know in the last year that compliments are no different i need to learn the lesson of the compliment and then move on. And I don't want to live in the struggle. I mean, I don't want to live in the compliment any more than I live in the struggle. Both are uh, uh, downers. And living in the problem is is kind of a, a clear thing that I don't want to do very long. And I realize that I don't want to live in the compliment either. So now if I get a compliment, I say, thank you. I learned its lesson. You know, I, I spoke clearly. I, I was fair to all genders, that kind of thing. And then I move along. I don't live in the complement. So the studentness of Christianity that I ask people who really know, who really study this stuff, say that um, Paul's letters um, were about 100 years after Christ died. And that there were some things written down maybe 40, 70 years after Christ died. Uh, but the bulk of anything about Christ's message had a long gap. And I, I just choose the Paul's letters as 100 years after Christ died. Now, can you imagine, Just just ponder this for a second, if they'd never written a big book and Bill and Bob started talking about this basic message and the first 100 started talking about this basic message and not until the year... 2039 which is how many years from now 32 years from now did anybody start writing anything down imagine that you know you know that little game in in grade school telephone or you you put something in somebody's ear <clears throat> well that's kind of what happens between here and here between the message and the machine so I very much respect the fact that our founders, Bill and Bob and the first 100, wrote down the message themselves. This is, the authors were the founders. And that AA has gone into its machine phase. And this helps me understand why AA can be so different all over the country. And if I were to have an opinion about AA, which I try not to do, um, someone told me once in AA, we vote with our feet and that's all I needed. Never been to a bad meeting. I've been to several just once. Uh, And I probably robbed myself of a pretty good meeting by not giving those a chance more than once. But the idea that The machine of AA has some disconnect from the message, (coughs) and that's why I constantly go back to the book Alcoholics Anonymous for my direction. Uh, And um, With that said, Bill, with the help of some others but not the first 100, wrote the 12 and 12, and it came out in, in 1953. And um, um, and I want to read a couple of outtakes from some historical texts about the 12 and 12, starting with some information that's in Pass It On. First, there was the writing of 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. For some time... Bill had been planning to produce a volume of essays. This is the next thing that somebody pointed out to me, that the 12 and 12 was written to broaden and deepen our understanding of the steps as written in the earlier work, the big book, and their essays. It also mentions on page 15 in the forward to the 12 and 12 that these, es- these are essays. And my joke is to use the 12 and 12 as a standalone text is to like take a Shakespeare course and read only the Cliffs' notes. It isn't a perfect simile, but um, uh, you never get the richness of reading the brilliant language of Shakespeare. For some time, he had, Bill had been planning to produce a volume of essays, one essay for each step and one for each tradition. <clears throat> These essays would expand, expound, and explain the meaning and applications of each principle. In 1951 and 52 when Bill wrote the second book he was suffering almost the the 12 and 12 he was suffering almost constant depression and was forced to confront the emotional and spiritual demons that remain stranded in the alcoholic psyche when the high tide of active alcoholism recedes. This is another theme of the 12 and 12, that absolutely brings it alive for me. It's essays. It was written to broaden and deepen my understanding of what was written in the big book. And it is really a lot about what comes after getting sober. And this is powerful language um, to confront the emotional and spiritual demons that remain stranded in the alcoholic psyche when the high tide of active alcoholism recedes. And then during Bill's 15 years sober, he had ample opportunity, he had had ample opportunity to become intimately acquainted with some of the unproductive and often negative attitudes and traits that are frequently part of the disease of alcoholism, continuing into sobriety. So this is a theme that I cannot avoid seeing, essays, broaden and deepen my understanding of the earlier work, and to address specifically sober unmanageability. By now, he knew well that apart from alcohol, alcoholics have other problems for which they must find solutions if they are to live comfortably. It is a further testament to Bill's genius that he had been able to write the actual steps themselves when he was barely dry behind the ears, for the steps apply precisely to the problems common to so many alcoholics after they stopped drinking. And so in some ways they're talking about the big book was helping people get sober, and it had within it the wisdom and the, dis- the disciplines and the directions for um continuing to experience emotional stability. Now Bill set out to write the essays that explained the 12 steps. He made no revisions or amendments in the steps themselves. They remained exactly as he had written them years earlier. That's from Pass It On, page 352. I also want to um, encourage questions, comments, I'm uh, still trying to figure out how to do this without boring our CD and tape friends to death. When, uh, so if you if you do have a question, please uh, make it as succinct as possible, and then I'll repeat it so we don't create a lot of dead space on the tape. The next one I want to read is from uh, Ernest Kurtz's book, Not God. Uh, it was his Harvard PhD thesis on the history of AA, and the trade edition of that thesis was the book, Not God. that. I found, to be, I found Kurtz to be a pretty brilliant writer, and he, his other book, The, the Spirituality of Imperfection, um, uh, really hits at the heart of, of 12-step recovery as well. In 1950, Wilson began to withdraw from active leadership in the ever-increasing enterprises of the Fellowship's New York office, declaring his desire to devote concentrated time to several writing projects. Bill began formal work on the philosophically most important of these only in 1952, but he clearly based it on his experience between 1946 and 1950. The treatise emerged in 1953 as Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. This book set forth Wilson's deepest understanding of the AA way of life. It was AA's New Testament. bringing to fruition the original revelation of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I really like, like that. This is the 12 and 12 was AA's New Testament. Influenced by the events surrounding him, Bill Wilson began and ended his portrayal of AA's 12 steps as a way of life <coughs> by stressing the continuing necessity of the total deflation of even a raised bottom. And again, this becomes a theme highlighted in the 12 and 12 that Uh, by this time, people didn't have to be the absolute low bottom drunks of the stories in the first edition. And the revision of this, of the stories in the second edition included people with, uh, younger people, people with, uh, women, and people with, uh, much higher bottoms. But his insistence was that even if you had a high bottom, you still had to capture and maintain this total deflation. Um, So the continued necessity of the total deflation of even a raised bottom and the persistence in even the recovering alcoholic of childishness, immature grandiosity, and infantile defiance. (laughs) Yeah, not me, of course, but I've certainly witnessed it in meetings. But again, what we're talking about is untreated alcoholism in AA. Dry, but... In the early, early stages of growing spiritually, and I, you know, I've lived all of these things, so I can I can speak from personal experience. But here's Ernest Kurtz's uh, view of of summarizing what the 12 and 12 does, is that it talks about the persistence and even the recovering alcoholic, of childishness, immature grandiosity, and infantile defiance. Between these themes and derived from them, Wilson located an ancient motive motif. The key to AA way of life was simply humility, which is a huge theme in the 12 and 12, and defined extensively uh, in steps five, six, and seven. So, question. 124. When something like this happens to me, as what's I'm going through with the 12 and 12, it's not unlike what happened with me in the Big Book. That the truth of the Big Book, when it's revealed to me, allows other truths in other contexts to be revealed. And uh, it's just, you know, it makes it makes growing old tolerable. I'll tell you. I want to review just a couple of more, uh, highlights from the foreword. That first one about, um, why it was written was on page 17, and, and these are on page 15. Um, page 15, lines 10 through 13. And again, these things are brought to me by friends and, and, when I uh, when I talk about my excitement about the 12 and 12, then then people bring me these things, and they're like great kingdoms in small packages handed to me. Line uh, page 15, lines 10 through 13. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles. This is boilerplate stuff for 12 and 12 students. A.A.'s 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, and that's Kurtz's saying that Bill started this as saying that this is a way of life and finishes it by saying that this is a way of life, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink, get us sober, and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And again, here's that theme emerging from the 12 and 12. It isn't just a matter of getting sober. And in step 10, it talks about uh, three elements of a sequence. Getting sober, getting emotionally stable, and living lives of good purpose. And that's why Joe McQuainy's life for me was a classic example of someone adopting the 12 Steps as a way of life. And he was pure love, pure tolerance. I remember he would always finish, he would always start his response in a conversation with the last thing that I said. And what an affirmation that is, even if I was full of crap or not. He'd restate it. And that was my experience with Marion. You felt loved. You felt lifted up. Like I play a little better golf sometimes if I play with better golfers. I'm lifted up. Something inside of me is is altered and changed. Uh, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can one, expel the obsession to drink, and two, enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. There's more to this program than just getting sober. And then further on down that line it just says, though the essays which follow were written mainly for members, it is thought by many of AA's friends that these pieces might arouse interest and find application outside AA itself. And I know that um, in the original manuscript, a very rare copy of which exists here, uh, the copy that was mailed to Dr. Dennis Strong in its mailing envelope with three red cardboard stiffeners in it. That's that's a good piece. Um, that the original language of Step 12 in that manuscript was uh, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. And I think Bill always—maybe it was a part of his opinion, maybe it was a part of his uh, lingering grandiosity—but he wanted this wisdom tradition to uh, to be adopted by everybody because he saw that it really applied. And and I think the 12 and 12 has that element of giving it one more shot, uh, might arouse interest and in find application outside of AA itself. Many people. Continuing the bottom of page 15. Many people, non-alcoholics, report that as a result of the practice of AA's 12 steps, they have been able to meet other difficulties of life. They think that the 12 steps can mean more than sobriety for problem drinkers. Again, this theme that just jumps off of every paragraph, actually. They see in them a way to happy and effective living for many alcoholic or not so um, I'd say that you know AA certainly 12 steps has certainly found broad application in in a variety of fellowships um, fellowships that exist because meetings are for the newcomer and uh, um, and they need to be able to relate when they show up the solution is exactly the same for all of these maladies So my personal experience with the 12 and 12 started in May of 1977 when I was a detox technician at the Duluth Receiving Center. Uh, In the early 70s, alcoholism was decriminalized, and instead of taking drunks to drunk tanks, they took them to receiving centers. They were detox units in local hospitals, and I was a technician there. It was, um, I'd been sober just over a year, and I was kind of testing my, um, putting my toes in the water of of getting into the field. Um, I also had a girlfriend who lived up in Duluth, and so I got that job. Mentioned probably the the biggest dynamic. And some guy was having a struggle, and one of the nurses said to me, he says, go get a 12 and 12. And guess what I said? What's a 12 and 12? (laughs) And I was embarrassed, of course, you know, wanted to to know everything and be everything. A little part of me is like that. Um, But then I was kind of first exposed to that book. And since then, I've mentioned that When I went to step meetings that used the 12 and 12, I basically wasn't, it just wasn't that inspiring for me. And one of the reasons it wasn't that inspiring for me is because I guess I was experiencing that it's not meant to be a standalone text, that it's meant to be in the context of something else. And I didn't have that context. But I picked up some things, and I I was just um, speaking with somebody about a guy who visited... um, our meeting in Bedford Village, uh, Joe H., and he talked about page 98 in the 12 and 12. And in the Step 11 section, it says, there is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Each taken separately can bring much benefit and relief, but when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. This is a paragraph up near the top of page 98 in the 12 and 12. And that was kind of one of the first little cut-and-paste elements that I started using from the 12 and 12 um, as kind of a, a one more example of the difference between the summary of the steps as often hung on the wall and the directions, the information and sequence of action, sequence of information and action in the Roman numerals in the first 103 pages in the big book. And that was one of the things that Joe and Charlie really got my attention early on, in that Big Book comes alive seminar back in 1988, when they taught. They talked about wall steps, and I try not to use that. I'm using that phrase less and less now, because for for newcomers, and I I do a lot of work with newcomers, um, I think it's confusing. However, I found, um, in the Big Book, on page Roman numeral 22. Uh, in the forward to the third edition, a much more, I think, straightforward way of talking about the steps that wound up on the wall. And in it, it says, the summary... The 12 steps that summarize the program trace exactly the same path to recovery that was blazed by the earliest members of Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12 steps that summarize the program, those are the wall steps. So at Hazelden, recently in one of our presentation rooms, somebody got the 12 steps and the 12 traditions, got those panels nicely framed, put them up on the wall, and it says the 12 steps and it says the 12 traditions. Well, I and my little, I don't know what I'd call it, maybe a little impishness uh, for accuracy's sake, wrote on the 12 steps a summary of the 12 steps. The good news is I used a dry erase, so if it offends <laughs> anybody, they can. Um, but for me, that's the, that's, it's just a summary. But the summary, the 12 steps that summarize the program, trace exactly the same path to recovery, which is the sequence of information and in action de- described in the Roman numerals in the first 103 pages of the big book. The path to recovery. And actually, it's probably more accurately the path of recovery, as it says on page 164 in the big book, in, in those blazing words of the end of a vision for you, uh, as we trudge the road of happy destiny. This is a process. And one of the 12 and 12's main emphasis is this, this is a process that's never over. It's a way of life. So... I started using snippets, including page 98, to help talk about <coughs> the difference between the summary steps and <coughs> the sequence of information and in action. And then I added to my cut and paste repertoire the um, page 42. When uh, I, you know, I teach the Big Book 4 step as well as share it. With sponsees, but I teach it um, to to interested students and um, the the thing that you know I, I was in treatment I was reading the directions on the four step pages 63 through 71 in the big book and I got to that three column inventory <clears throat> and I was really perplexed um, I was really pissed at mrs. Brown and mr. Brown and and my <laughs> boss uh, and fear bracketed. I mean, wh- where is this stuff coming from? Uh, self-esteem. And it just it just, I didn't get it from the big book. And one of the things that um, the other themes of the 12 and 12 is its uh, discussion of instincts. And so we're talking about essays, guidelines for continuing, to thrive after we've gotten sober and the instincts. And I I can't tell you there's nothing that has given me a vision for understanding my own and others' behavior than a growing understanding of this constellation of instincts uh, that's actually in your handout. We'll be talking about it this afternoon. Um I think the most comprehensive list I've seen, uh, which comes from Joe McQuaney's Recovery Dynamics, the treatment program he wrote based on the big book. Um, I'll hold that book up because I steal a lot from it, and, uh, you know, it's like a $49, $50 deal. But it is is a brilliant treatment plan, step-by-step, for... Based on the 12 steps. And Joe's list of the instincts in there uh, gleaned from all of the literature. And it's so clear that, you know, they were studying all of this way back when. Uh, They include all the information from the 12 and 12. They include all the information from the big book. It now makes sense to me. But this idea of understanding human instincts and the role that they play in self-will, the role that they play in our character defects, um, I, I don't think I've ever discovered anything more meaningful for understanding myself and understanding others. And if you find it difficult to be tolerant and loving of others, um, for me, bringing this constellation of instincts to those questions, when I have a hard time liking somebody or tolerating somebody, when I can just kind of quickly think what instinctual patterns they might be demonstrating, not taking their inventory, but just understanding their humanness. Uh, it's priceless, it's absolutely priceless. So I was using very frequently and have memorized the first two paragraphs of the step four chapter in the 12 and 12 on page 42. It starts out, uh, nature gave us instincts for a purpose. Uh, without them, we wouldn't be complete human beings. And... Um, We'll cover that this afternoon as well. But that was kind of the extent of my using the 12 and 12. And then what happened that probably changed everything um, was that I heard that uh, Joe had written a book or a manuscript that I don't think is published yet. I think it's being reworked on the instincts. And then I started to look at the 12 and 12 uh, in an expanded sense, I started to look beyond page 42, page 43, page 44, page 45, page 46, page 47, page 48, and it is incredibly dense with this discussion of instincts. The word instinct is mentioned once in the first 164 pages of the big book, and 38 times instinct, instincts, instinctual, instinctually, instinctive, 38 times in just the first twelve chapters of the of the twelve and twelve. Um, that's made all the difference. I picked up the twelve and twelve after hearing about the importance of instincts and starting to study them a little more. I I looked at the 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 first paragraph of step one, and was blown away by what it said. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It's in the first, it's in the third sentence. These are 12 essays littered with extensive information about human instinct. And the rest is history for me. Um, this will now be an incorporation, but I'm always going to do it the way I'm doing it uh this weekend, starting with the big books, sequence of information and in action, and then enhancing it with whatever my current understanding of the broadening and deepening of our understanding of that is in the 12 and 12. Any comments or questions before we proceed? Yes. Hey Ralph. Um, and thank you for your presentation. Um, was primarily, primarily speaking of Bill Wilson who co the big book of the twelve and twelve. What series of event from the time of the writing of the first uh the big book to the twelve and twelve in his life that had impacted to actually expand uh more on these yeah. on the I'm I'm not a AA archivist. I'm not an AA historian. I'm a, a student of those things, and there's a lot of good information about that. My best understanding, and the question is, what happened to Bill um, in between the time the big book was published that moved him to want to write another book? And one of the things was his, I think, as I'm reading the history, his observation that a lot of people were still struggling uh, even though they were sober. And his own statement was that he needed to uh, get a to to bring the information alive again to people, so that they could see that it had just as much application in their lives today as it did back when they were, you know, suffering as as in early recovery. Um, I think what I read too from Pass it On is that he was struggling with depression, and he had to face a lot of that. He went to, you know, he started seeing. Dr. Harry Tebow and uh, getting some psychotherapy for his struggles. Um, my, the big question um, I'm working on now is what changed that the word instinct only appeared once in the big book, and it's what the 12-by is largely about. And I'm still on a, a – my, my basic conclusion at this point is that you didn't need to know that much about the instincts to get sober. And the amount that you learn in the four step is adequate to kind of start getting familiar with some of those things about yourself. But you really need to know the inst- about the instincts to stay sober, to get emotionally balanced, and to live uh, productive lives. Yes. Hi, Ivan. Yeah. 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 The comment, and and I think it's a, a great one, is that the Big Book tells us what to do, and the uh, Twelve and Twelve explains why we need to do it, and I th- I think that also it has to do with. Um, Something that's become a very important part of my teaching lately uh, is this is a simple statement that what gets our attention in addiction isn't what needs our attention for right living. What gets our attention in addiction isn't what needs our attention for ongoing right living because AA is not a not drinking program. Those are called temperance movements. We've all tried them. How many of you have sworn it off? How uh, that, how that work out for you? My favorite question. So, um, yeah, I think a part of a part of what happened to me when I got when the big book became alive for me, then the history of AA became alive for me and now because the 12 and 12 is coming alive for me i think the history of that is coming alive but i'm the, the so the idea that you don't need to know that much about the instincts to get sober but you need to know a lot about the instincts to just live a happy to become emotionally balanced and to live a productive life i think is 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 very very true but i always kind of think that maybe bill all knew that stuff and he said, I'll save that for, a, for a, another, a later work. Who knows? That's all just pure conjecture. Uh, anybody else have any comments or um, want to add to that discussion about the history of uh, 12 and 12? Yes. Yes. yeah I don't know i maybe he would have written a pamphlet on smoking or something i don't know but um, question was would 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 if bill were still alive would he um would there would there still be more wisdom flowing and i i would of course i mean I think this this is um the truth has no bottom, and um that there's always a deeper understanding and that's what's so exciting for me about studying this that the book never gets boring. Um, simply because I'm growing and learning, and then I read it at a different level, and uh, therefore, then I teach at a different level, uh, or at least a level that keeps it really exciting and interesting for me as well. So, great question. Yes, hi. <laughs> The comment was that Bill would have written a book on I Was Right. Yeah. My Way Out. Yeah. Well, um, now we're going to transition into, uh, the segment that starts to talk about, um, one last front end thing. And this is maybe just a a part of my tendency to intellectualize, although I'll tell you, the greatest gift that that Joe and Charlie seminar gave me in 1988 was that it allowed me to engage my intellect in recovery. When I think up to that point, I would had to kind of just shut off a sense of logic or, or any sense of academics. And it allowed me to engage my intellect, which is really important for me. You know, intellectualizing is a problem. Um, However, for me to have some grasp of the logic and the sequence of things makes it much more easy for me to practice it. And so that's one of the keys to my action is, is some level of understanding. For a long time, I just did it because I was told to. And then it became easier once I saw why I needed to do it, kind of the reason for the 12 and 12, and that's why it's so exciting too. But two words um, continue to stick in my head as, as critical elements of my life today. One is context, and the other is sustainability. Sustainability. Context and sustainability. And the power of this, I think I've already referenced in talking about the 12 and 12 without a context was not an exciting adventure for me to read. If it had a context, and which it does now, it, it brings the whole thing alive. And sustainability, apart from the kind of constant lessons I learn about um, energy and what's going on today in terms of fossil fuels, and that in in a long term, the use of fossil fuels uh, isn't as sustainable as say the use of wind power or something i 'm not getting political on you here I just just that's where I'm learning about what sustainable means um, mulching is that right no composting you know. Nobody goes out and has to, um, fertilize the forests. They fertilize themselves with their droppings. And we rake leaves, but what we're doing is we're, we're raking away the, the food, tree food that helps sustain it every year. Um, and that's why we sometimes have to augment fertilization, uh, because we're taking away these normal, sustainable, Nature is sustainable, and sometimes the way we do things are uh, is not sustainable. Now, the other thing that makes this even more powerful—these two words, context and sustainability—is Marion Forbes's. I'm going to talk a lot about Marion. I'm going to talk a lot about Joe. Um, Marion Forbes used to make a statement that continues to have a lot of meaning for me, and that statement is: "We are in the world." but we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And as I said, that has whatever meaning it has for you right now. Pondering it continuously as a context for reading about these wisdom traditions, that this is what the big book and the 12 and 12 are all about. If I live my life In the context of being in the world, it is not sustainable. If I live my life in the context of not being of the world, I then reach sustainability. And I think wisdom traditions, I think right living is all about maintaining this context that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Does that make any sense? And I've heard um, Don P. from Colorado finish up very powerful talks by saying we're spiritual beings having a human experience, not human beings having a spiritual experience. That's the heart and soul of it as well. We are spirit manifest. And therefore, what I think right living and 12-step and directions give us are the directions for manifesting spirit in the world. And that's what Joe did so well. That's what Marion does so well. And that's why the newcomers winds up going to meetings after they show up there, because we're we're manifesting our spirit in the meeting. And that's attraction. Self promotes. Spirit attracts. And that's why this is a program of, of attraction, not promotion. So. Okay. Now, moving into the section of the hopeless condition. Joe and Charlie started their seminar by giving me a context for the big book. The context was the three goals of 12-step recovery. We're gonna talk about (laughs) those three goals. We're gonna follow their sequence as discussed in the big book, and then add this broadening and broader and deeper understanding that comes in from the 12 and 12. The first goal of 12-step recovery is to identify the problem. The second goal of 12-step recovery is to define the solution. And the third goal of 12-step recovery is to take action to bring about the solution. When that outline was made clear to me, the book started to make infinite sense because I knew wherever I was in the book, I was going to be either reading about the problem, reading about the solution, or reading about the program of action that brings about the solution that then solves the problem, and they also made it clear in terms of context That the big book was a textbook, which I never knew. It's referenced that in the foreword to the 12 and 12. The book Alcoholics Anonymous became the basic text of the fellowship. And I'm going, oh, wow, yeah. And I always joked about my using the big book like a bound set of tarot cards. My first spiritual context was superstition. Uh, actually, it was a very strong spiritual context for my life. You know, walking to school, and I mean, just that silly stuff like not stepping on a on a crack. Or, or for me, it was like breathing out when I went past people I didn't like, and breathing in when I walked past people I <laughs> did like. And I'll, I'll stop now. Uh, <laughs> My life was riddled with it. It was was all I had to hold on to um, to try to be secure. I was attempting to fulfill emotional security. I was doing the best I could given my set of circumstances. But we're going to talk a lot about emotional security because it's one of the most powerful, built-in, instinctual elements of our humanness. So. The big book's a textbook to be studied because that's how you study textbooks. That's how you use textbooks as you study them from the beginning. And then they even went on to say that the beginning isn't page one in Bill's story. The beginning is the doctor's opinion. And in all 16 printings of the first edition between April of 1939 and I don't know what month the second edition came out in 1955. Anybody know? August of 90, August of 55. Thank you. Um, it's one of the reasons I love coming here. Uh, a lot of experience, strength, and hope and wisdom in the room. Um, all of those 16 printings in those 16 years had the doctor's opinion on page one. And now it's on, I think, Roman numeral 25. And in the third edition, it was on Roman numeral 25. And so people picking up... Um, the book for the first time, opening up thinking they're starting at the beginning of the book on page one, needed that extra coaching to know that that no longer is the beginning of the book. And uh, uh, the doctor's opinion is where we're told what the problem is. And Joe and Charlie invoked lots of wisdom, life wisdom phrases, including one, and all of these had great appeal to me. I like the things Marion used to say that would just move into my head take up residency, imprint themselves, and stay there forever. Um, The problem defines the solution. Anything that you do successfully as a problem solver, unless you're really lucky, has to do with your being a good analyst or diagnostician. Anything that you do well in terms of problem solving is based on the quality of your analysis or problem identification. With cars, it's so obvious. I mean, I spent about $800 on my God car, that 1983 Toyota Land Cruiser FJ60. It's red, by the way. (laughs) Lots of extras. Um, After I had an accident, it kept running a little hot. So we didn't we weren't quite sure. We replaced the water pump. Then we replaced the radiator. Then finally when a replacement water pump that is right on where the fan is uh went bad, we realized that the shaft of the water pump was bent a little. And that's what was causing it. So we had to get that whole new shaft. Um until then, I was spending lots of money thinking I was solving the, getting a solution for the problem I thought I had. And there is nothing more important, and I, I really want to stress this, there is nothing more important than our understanding of the problem, both for our own recovery and for our ability to help others. Nothing more important. I, I teach it as the foundation of recovery, and I've even realized that that little ditty on page 98, "An Unshakable Foundation for Life," technically, my isn't isn't the spiritual solution. My spiritual solution is, is shaken all the time. What isn't shaken? My unshakable foundation for spiritual living is the truth about my disease, which is what Step One is all about: the problem. And I never apologize for spending a lot of time with sponsees or students as a teacher talking about the simple elements of addiction that were made so clear. Once they were revealed to me, I wouldn't have gotten them on my own reading the book. But they had to be revealed to me by those who knew it. How much time? Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So um, once again... The three goals of 12-step recovery, where we'll pick up when we take a break here, identify the problem, define the solution, take action to bring about the solution. And Joe McQueney always kind of trumps anybody's comment about these things when he said, the quality of your spiritual life is solely dependent on the quality of your understanding, step one. The quality of your spiritual life is solely dependent on the quality of your understanding, the depth and truth of step one. Thanks. We'll see you at quarter till.